Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas in social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Since starting the Mission Forward Conversation series, I have had the opportunity to interview some amazing people. Pulitzer Prize-winning writers, MacArthur Genius Award winners, media entrepreneurs, and philanthropists. One of my favorite conversations was with Ed Young and Liz Neely. It took place in 2018, shortly after Ed wrote a story in The Atlantic titled, I spent two years trying to fix the gender imbalance in my stories. Here's what I've learned and why I did it. Ed was a big deal then, but he's had quite a run these last few years. This past September, his story on the coronavirus pandemic, how did it come to this, took the cover spot on magazine. And since that time, he's published several other articles on COVID-19, including his most recent, America is about to choose how bad the pandemic will get. Given how much I value Ed Young, how straightforward he can make even the most complex science story, we decided to resurface this great conversation from a few years back about building equity and breaking bias in storytelling. We're joined in the conversation with Ed's partner, Liz Neely, who works at the intersection of science and communication. Liz and Ed are extraordinary people and exceptional journalists and communicators. I loved this conversation and I know you will too. So let's get to it. I'd like to tell you a story from a book called Whistling Vivaldi, which is um, by an author named Claude Steele. It's a story about a young man who many years ago was going to the University of Chicago, and he was one of only a few at the time African-American men who was going to the University of Chicago. And he would walk every morning from his apartment near campus through Chicago's Hyde Park to get to his uh, classes on campus. And he realized after the first few days that as he would walk through the park and walk down the sidewalk, individuals who were walking towards him would move off of the sidewalk and walk on the other side of the street. And it only took him about three days to realize this was happening day after day. And that didn't feel very good for him. So he decided to forego this beautiful walk through Hyde Park and take the long way to class. So he took an extra 20 minutes every day, but he knew he could get there without that feeling of, I'm frightening people. So months went by and he decided one day it was beautiful out. He didn't care. He was whistling. He was going to walk to school the way he wanted to walk to school. And he was whistling Vivaldi. He was whistling Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And he realized almost immediately that the people who had for so long been crossing the street and walking on the other side were smiling and laughing and saying hello. And in just that minute, all he had changed was that he was whistling classical music. He had completely diffused the negative stereotype that he knew he was associated with. So 
I think about that story a lot. Um, I think about that story every day when we think about the work that we do um, in the, the communities that we are part of, whether that be the campus communities that we are part of, the faith communities, um, the communities where we get our stories, right? The communities where we think about who's getting, who's sharing with us uh, the news that we're reading. Are we sharing and creating stories that are reinforcing negative stereotypes or are we creating and sharing stories that diffuse and break those stereotypes? And that's something that at Mission Partners we think about every day. We realize that as a communications agency supporting great nonprofit and foundation organizations who have incredible missions and working with incredible people, that um, it is our responsibility to make sure that we are looking at our work through an equity lens, as we say, thinking about the words that we use, what they mean, not just to us, but to the communities that we're ultimately speaking to and speaking on behalf of. Um, so when we decided we wanted this spring reception to focus on that topic, on building equity in communities and breaking stereotypes and the role that storytelling can have in breaking stereotypes, we thought about who would be the best person to have that conversation with. And of course, naturally, we thought about Ed. Um, many of you I know read our weekly What We're Reading newsletter and know that we featured Ed's story many months ago. Um, incredibly um, thankful to have him here and um, that he signed up Liz without her knowledge. Um, <laughs> equally happy to have Liz here and uh, especially happy um, after I really got to, to see what you are doing and how incredibly um, uh, cutting edge, I think it is, and critical it is in the bigger picture. So I want to tell you a little bit about Ed and Liz before we start. And um, I will say first that Ed has written some of the most beautiful science writing I have ever read. Um, and if you are not familiar with his um, book, I hope that you um, pick it up. It's called I Contain Multitudes. Um, and I'm sure you're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Ed has been writing about the field of science for more than a decade, and there is something that you said not too long ago that I'd like to share with these folks, and I hope that I get it right. It makes the perfect connection between science writing and the story that I just told. Everything I can see, every animal, every bug is profoundly influenced by things I cannot see. If we don't understand them, the microbes that are in us, we don't understand ourselves. We are like looking at our biology through a keyhole. Through writing I Contain Multitudes, I wanted to throw the door wide open. I wanted to expose people to a grander view of life that comes with understanding the microbial world. When you do, even the most familiar, mundane things become newly amazing and wondrous. Wow. So from the, the tiniest little microbe, you know, how we think about and understand and connect with the world around us. And Liz who's a marine biologist by training, but for the past decade has been helping scientists around the world tell more compelling stories. Um, and she's my favorite kind of storyteller too, if I'm fully honest, because she focuses on the emotion and the humanity in science and making sure that that is what comes through. Because I think um, for those of you who are in the room who are storytellers, it's easy to actually forget sometimes that there are humans behind the stories that we're telling. Um, and perhaps fitting to have this conversation tonight, the night after the Henrietta Lacks portrait was unveiled um, down at the National, National Portrait Gallery, thinking about the, um, the mother behind all of the science and the, the woman behind the science, right? That there was so much humanity that was lost for so long. I must be um, 
uh, equal in my in my um, giving quotes here. So I'm also going to read from something that you said. From our earliest days on this earth, human beings weren't just aware of threats from predators, but from other human beings. A big part of our brains are still engaged in questions like, what are your intentions? What are your motivations in behaving the way you're behaving? Are you attempting to harm me? It's ingrained in us. We are constantly constructing narratives in our mind because that's how we make sense of the world. Stereotypes, threats, bias, it's ingrained in us. But there's something that can be done about it, and it starts with humanity. Right? So that's where we're going to start tonight. I'd like first just to um, turn it to you each, and I, I know each of you wanted to be here for a different reason, and so I wanted just to give you that moment to say why. Why was this such an important conversation for you to be part of tonight? So thanks for having me. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. You know that quote that you um, that you read out. Um, which is from my book, um, is about um, is about microbes. So the book is about the partnerships between um, the microbes that live within us um, and uh, humans and all, all other animals. And it's about how fundamentally uh, microbes have long been viewed as um, agents of disease, as things that we needed to avoid. And now we're sort of embracing the fuller picture of them as parts of our lives that provide benefits and, uh, and, and are uh, an important part of our identity. Um, and that idea of um, revealing stories that have been um, unseen and neglected for a long time is a large part of why I write the book, wrote the book and it's a large part of why I'm interested in science. I think um, it, it often tells, reveals us, uh, to us things that we didn't know already, things that are slightly subversive or, or, or sort of below the threshold of our perception. Um, when I wrote the book, a, an incredible woman named Angela Garbers wrote a review of it for um, The Stranger, um, where she said... Um, a lot of what he's saying um, in this book about microbes could equally apply to people from marginalized communities. Um, and I think that was a really astute point that actually made me think about the book in a very different light than, than I had been when I was, when I was writing it. Um, but that is something that, that matters to me too. And it's part of the same, the same draw that drives me to, to write about um, the, the wonders and discoveries of, in the world around us, um, that um, we, we don't have a full picture of the world. Um, and in, in gaining that fuller picture, um, our lives and our view of the world are immeasurably improved. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm here tonight because that, that, that drive uh, informs a lot of the work that I'm currently doing at the Atlantic. Um, so we can talk about the, the, you know, we can talk about that a little bit more, um, and some of the steps I've taken. But, um, you know, I sit at an intersection of two fields, the media and science, where women, where people of colour, where um, people with disabilities, where immigrants, where, like people from all kinds of um, marginalised groups, um, often are voiceless. Um, you know where where um, where uh, that where they have uh, struggled to find representation, um, where they have uh, struggled to be heard and to be treated as equals, um, and I think it, it therefore it feels like there's a tremendous responsibility to um, to write some of those historical imbalances. And I think as someone who works as a journalist writing for the Atlantic, one of the finest publications in this country. Um, you know, we have, I have a lot of power as a gatekeeper. And I've been thinking very hard recently about how best to exercise that power mm -hmm. to, um, f you know, to further the goals that are important to me.
And I, I'm someone who works in a community that prizes objectivity. You know, in science, people talk all the time about, oh, it's just the data is speaking for itself, and this is a, a pure meritocracy. And these are highly unscientific claims. <laughs> and so I really like to take aim directly at this issue of objectivity and what it means. So Ed says he likes to be a voice for the voiceless, and I think that's wonderful. It's also, people are not voiceless. They are being actively silenced. And there's all sorts of gatekeeping that happens to control who gets to t take a stage, who gets to tell what kinds of stories, and how we pat patrol professional boundaries of legitimate expertise or relevant information or who is worthy of being a keynote speaker. So what I do is I think about who does science belong to? We live in a time where we talk about how medicine and engineering and, and scientific knowledge about climate change is shaping all of our lives more than it ever has. And inside the ivory tower, I hear a lot of colleagues saying, why doesn't the public trust us? You know, why, why don't they listen to what we say? And so I think there's a lot of work to be done in figuring out how we position the value of scientific knowledge how we contextualize it as a very, it's a profoundly human undertaking, and it is the product of the cultures that we are actively creating. And so part of what I'm doing at Story Collider is to humanize, not just like, why should we care about this specific kind of technical knowledge, but who do we feel kinship or alliance with? Who do we trust? Who do we feel inspires and represents us? And can we do a better job of accurately representing the current state of who does science and what it's actually like to do that and then share that with everyone else? Okay, so Ed, you tell fascinating stories, but a few years ago you realized that there was something going on inside your stories, um, maybe something missing inside some of your stories. So tell us what that discovery was mm -hmm. and what that discovery um, did to you or, or did for you. It actually began with one of my colleagues um, who's an amazing journalist named Adrienne LaFrance. Um, she works at The Atlantic too. Um, she did... Uh, Two consecutive and that two consecutive analyses um, in I'm going to forget the years now. I think it was two um, maybe 2014 and 15, but two recent years where she analysed the ratio of uh, women to men um, whom she was quoting in her stories, um, and she got a very bright computer scientist to help her do this. And um, in the first year, she found that she was quoting uh, about three men for every woman. So about 25% of her sources in her stories were women. Uh, the year later, she repeated the analysis and found exactly the same result. And so published um, two pieces, the second one on The Atlantic, um, about these results and what it means. Um, and um, Adrian's perspective was that as journalists, as people who act as gatekeepers, who have a very real say in whose voices are represented in the work that the rest of us get to hear, um, she is effectively part of this giant system that undervalues women's voices. Um, and she covers areas um, such as technology at the time, uh, where, where women were underrepresented, um, and that in in as um 
in her own work, as evidenced by the analysis she did, um, she was contributing to that underrepresentation. I was I was inspired by that. Um, I wanted to look at the um, equivalent ratio in my own work. Um, this was a time when I was starting to think much harder about issues of gender equality. Um, you know, I would have billed myself as a feminist at the time. Um, I would have thought that if I had done that um, analysis, it probably wouldn't have been 50-50, but it would, like, I didn't expect it to be bad. Um, and it turns out it was. So this was um, about two years ago. Um, and uh, I did not get a computer scientist to help me. I just did a little spreadsheet um, and uh, and just tabulated the number of male and female sources from all my stories of that year. So this was about February 2017. And I came up with the exact same ratio that Adrian did. And it turns out that that is the same ratio that just exists in the media in general. Like when people do analyses um, of like uh, female representation in the media, it, it almost invariably ends up being roughly the same. So three to one, um, 25% women. And I thought, well, damn, this is this is not good. And I wanted to do something about it. Um, so what I what I did was to make an active effort in the work that I do to try and include more, uh, more women. Um, and um, crucially, I also kept tabs of that. So that spreadsheet continued for the rest of 2017. And I still keep it up to date now. So every story I write, I write down the number of men and women who I quote. At the start, I also wrote down the number of men and women who I contacted for a quote, and I'll get to that in a bit. Um, and some other small pieces of data. So it didn't take a huge amount. But the the great thing about the spreadsheet was that it allowed myself, it allowed me to keep myself honest, to keep an ongoing tab of how well I was doing towards the goal that I wanted to achieve. It took about four months to get to a point where I was quoting men and women equally. Um, and that has remained roughly at that point, at that level, ever since, so it varies. It you know it goes up and down a bit from month to month. It certainly isn't like fifty fifty for every single story, but in aggregate, um, I quote as many women as I do men now. So a few points in this. Firstly, the spreadsheet is crucial. Like the the reason why the spreadsheet was important was before that point, and it was very easy for me to bullshit myself that everything was fine. You know, you would like write a story, I would write a story, I would quote like three women and go, well, look, you know, isn't that great? And then you forget all the number of times that you that I wasn't doing that. Um, so, you know, keeping and keeping an accurate and real time set of data um, was was vital. Um, also, this took effort. It didn't take that much effort. Um, so, you know, for those of you who aren't in journalism and aren't familiar with how this works, like... I will write, uh, I usually write about four news stories a week. Typically, a lot of those will be based on a paper or a new discovery or some a talk I saw at a conference. There will usually be like one or two scientists who are behind that work. And then I will reach out to several people who are not involved to get their independent comment. So every story will typically have anywhere between two to five voices in it. So there's plenty of room for um, finding other people beyond the ones who you typically quote. And achieving equality here is really a simple act of trying to find sources to contact and then spending just a bit more time doing that um, until until I get uh, like an, an equal number. Um, it's often said that um, 
women are more reticent to put themselves forward when asked for their views from journalists. So a lot of people say that you you need um, you know they they've tried reaching out to female sources and sort of you know been turned down or been passed over uh, to uh, to um, male colleagues or whatever. Like there is some truth to this, um, but. It's not a huge effect. So typically I found that um, I would need to contact about 1.3 women to get a quote from a woman and about 1.6 men to get a quote from a man. There are probably several reasons for this. Um, one of them is that um, in fields of science where uh, men outnumber women anyway, um, the women who are in those fields may just have more to do. Like they may get more invitations to do talks. They may have all kinds of other responsibilities that are weighing on them that their male colleagues do not have. Um, it may also be that um, and I have found this from time to time, that women are more likely to say, no, I do not have expertise on this very particular thing that you're asking me about. Let me refer you to one of my male colleagues, whereas men are more likely to go, but I'm awake and... <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I can... Um, but, you know, it, th there, is, there is definitely a difference, but it's not a huge difference. Um, so... And, and again, like having the spreadsheet allows me to track those numbers and to adjust for that. So that's where we are now. Um, it, you know, I, I, I am reasonably happy with that. I think the spreadsheet allows me to keep myself honest. I'm trying to extend this to um, other, um, like other marginalized groups. So currently uh, about 25% of the people I quote are people of color, um, which is okay. I would love to, I would love that to be higher. It can be difficult because um, everything I've said about women in science applies even more so to people of colour in science. Um, and uh, and there are just some fields where there just aren't very many. But um, it takes a little bit of extra effort, not that much extra. And I think it's well worth it. And, you know, we can talk about all the reasons for why that is. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, Liz, and that's around who gets asked to do the keynote, right? Who gets the invitations? And it's all connected, right? That we realize that there is a system where there are inherently more men inside these fields. And so they are, of course, getting the first dibs on these invitations. But there's a bigger issue happening underneath this. And I'd love for you to talk a little more about what's behind that. Yeah, so as Ed was describing, looking for starting with gender equity in his pieces, I think it's becoming more and more common now in our circles and in science in particular, we joke about mannels, like don't say yes to being part of an all male panel. But I, I personally think like you have to be intersectional or nothing. Like you have to think about multiple realms. We all carry many different identities. And so one thing that I look at is every time I'm part of, uh, I'm invited to do a panel discussion, for example, is it all white people? You know, and especially is it a panel about diversity in science that's all white women? <laughs> and I think we need to be able to build up the capacity to first cue into those things before you're standing on stage and then thinking like, uh-oh, we've gone wrong here. How do we have the language to talk about this freely and forthrightly, both within our teams? And I think the data really helps. And then there's many uh, dimensions of identity that are not immediately apparent to an outside observer. And so at Story Collider, 
we have live shows and we have podcasts. So we have expectations of our teams in every city. We want gender equity or, or better in favor of females. We also make sure to think about beyond the gender binary to all sorts of different identities. And then we know that people need to be able to tell us about themselves. So we've thought about incentives. At Story Collider, when people take our stage, we offer a modest honoraria for the time and talent and courage it takes to do something like this. And as part of that, we've built in collecting self-identified demographic data. So I can tell you about what percentage of our storytellers are female. It's about 60%. And this is the same on stage and on our podcast. Right now, we're hovering right around 40% self-identified people of, of color. We also collect questions about religion and having children and socioeconomics and all of those things because we know that collectively understanding that is important to us. And most importantly, we don't ask those people to always get up on stage and talk about what is it like to be a woman in science? What is it like to be a woman of color trying to do, you know? We think about not just representation of who is telling the stories, but ownership of the stories and framing of it. You know, is it, do we have disabled people who are talking about just the cool science that they're doing rather than how do you navigate campus in a wheelchair or something like that? Um, so I do think about these things and I also pay keen attention to the dynamics of what happens in a room. I'm lucky at this point in my life, getting older, holding microphones, that I can interrupt dynamics when they start to go bad. You see people talking over someone else or taking up more time than is their fair share. And so when I think collectively as nonprofit leaders, um, what are the ways in which we are telling stories? There's many of them. Sometimes the stories themselves are products that we put out into the world. And sometimes it is by the composition of the events that we are participating in, um, as well as hosting ourselves. You used two really important words that I want you both to comment on, language and identity. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes... Uh, especially people in this room are they are very awake to the fact that we need to be thinking about the words that we are using and what they mean and how they will land with other people and are we using the right words and are we identifying people they, the way they want to be identified hard challenging questions that I think in many cases we don't necessarily know the answers to but we also realize we need to start someplace mm -hmm. so I'd love to ask you how you go through that process, how you think about when you are communicating about um, different communities that you might be covering, or you're thinking about the work that you do, communities that are showing up in the work and the stories that you're telling, how you test it with the community, how you think about the words that you're using, what that, um, that lens is that you're using to, before you go out and, and publish stories about identifying people a certain way. Um, so, you know, I will say that as a journalist, the vast majority of my work involves uh, me being spectacularly ignorant about something and then in a very short amount of time trying to be uh, acceptably ignorant about something. Usefully ignorant. Right, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, and I think in terms of what you said about, about, um, about language and the way language can be used to... Um, shape different identities um part, part of that is not being harmfully ignorant um now i i feel like 
what I've what I was talking about earlier in terms of trying to um, diversify my sources um, has huge benefits in, in this regard. It's not just about um, making sure that the columns of my spreadsheet balance out. Um, I think they help to greatly improve the quality of the journalism. So, you know, I'll give you some examples like. Um, uh, there is a huge amount of work at the moment uh, in a field called um, paleogenomics, which is basically looking at the DNA of um, old bones and fossils to understand the history of the um, individuals to, ho- to whom those bones belonged. Um, and um, uh, paleogenomics tells us a huge amount of human history. Um, it shows us the re- contribution of things like Neanderthals to our current DNA. It shows how people are spread around the world, like when they got to different parts of the world. Um, and paleogenomics is a field that is largely dominated by a small handful of labs that are run by white men. Um, and there is a lot of dis- there has been a lot of discussion, a lot of movement to get um, people from indigenous communities not only represented in this work but uh, represented within the science itself. Um, so whenever I cover um, stories in this field now, um, I do try and reach out to researchers who um, who have expertise in this area and who either have a long track record of engaging with communities who are involved in that work or who are part of those communities themselves ideally um so you know there's a lot of work on paleogenomics in like um native american history um so whenever i cover those there are like native american geneticists who are trying to reach out to for their comment um and that you know uh, again i think diversity is its own reward but journalistically what that gives me is a better sense of for example what terminology um in these studies that i'm writing about is um is considered um colonialist to someone with an indigenous background um and that helps me it, it helps me craft the words that i write and the words that i use um and the same goes for, for you know for uh, for a lot of different other um areas of life um you know mental health um like the it it it's i think a lot about trying to about who gets to be part of the stories um that i am telling you know liz and i work in very different fields but a lot of what we'll have to say tonight i think um has this shared commonality of of who um who is a scientist and through the work that we both of us do though they're very different how do we shape who gets to be seen as a scientist um and i think we have um you know i i think i have a tremendous role in that and in thinking about bringing more people who aren't usually part of those stories and narratives in i don't only like make myself feel good and 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 um but i also give them a chance to shape the discourse of what um of what science is yeah i wanted to to pick up on this idea of how do you talk about language how do you make decisions how do you check that you're doing the right thing For me, one of the really important things was attacking this idea that only bad people are racist, that, you know, it's somehow evil and I'm a good person, so I can't possibly have used language that harms someone or misgendered someone. So we started unpacking that. And you can help your team and your community learn about things like implicit bias and sort of get to the heart of... I know you're a good person. I know your intentions are great. 
Um, I saw an example of this recently. It's a clever way of using your Slack bots, if you use Slack, where every time someone used problematic language, like crazy as an adjective, um, it would pop up and say, we don't, we don't do that here. And it's about setting the culture and tone. And it's not about this hurts my feelings or you're policing me. It is our culture as a group has decided this kind of language has harmful effects. And we don't do that here. I think for us, too, it's not actually that hard because we believe that stories belong to the storytellers. And that means that our storytellers will tell us what pronouns do they want us to use? How do we describe them? They get to give us photographs. They get to give us bios. We do a minimal amount of putting words into their mouth or describing them publicly. And it does, I mean, like you think about what this means, it does slow you down. It adds in many layers of sort of editorial feedback and waiting for people to make sure they're happy with things. For us, too, we also make it um, abundantly clear that our storytellers can choose to pull out of a show at any point. It doesn't matter if it's day of or 20 minutes before they go on stage. They don't owe anyone their story. It's a gift that they are sharing. And if later they decide they don't want that publicized, we won't do it or we'll pull it from the podcast if it's already been published. And I think this goes to editorial control and who do stories belong to. And I don't know exactly the kind of work that all of you work on, but I know early in my science career, I worked um, very briefly in Hawaii and the project was amazing. It was teaching little kids how to do fish counts as we did reef transects and then teaching them how to use recording equipment to interview their grandparents, their kapuna, their elders, to hear stories about traditional fisheries management. And a lot of scientists are like, oh my God, that's amazing data. Like we have to get our hands on that. Those stories were not for Western scientists. And you need to think about ownership and permission and because stories are powerful and not every story is for every person. So I think, what does my board structure look like? Not just who do I put on stage or who do I put on my podcast? Who am I inviting to talk? Is it the same seven women who get asked to be on every panel and they're trying to make tenure, you know? Mm -hmm. We also have screeners, so outsiders who listen to episodes we think we might want to play to give us additional set of ears because we know, and this goes back to the data, no matter how sensitive we are, no matter how good our intentions are, we all have blind spots and we need to proactively, collectively act to address them. And, so, and just to add one more thing on that, um, I think if you if you approach it with this mindset, I think one one benefit of that is that um, the more people trust you, the more they're likely to give you feedback when you yeah. don't do things correctly. Yeah. Um, so, like as an example, um, the the first piece I wrote this year was about um, a scientist named Ben Barris who died recently, um, and uh, Ben was an incredible transgender scientist um, who did amazing neuroscience and spoke a lot about um, the issues facing marginalized communities. Um, the piece that I wrote about him was sort of an obituary of his work um, originally um, gave his um, his first name um, when he was still a woman um, and one of our friends just emailed me and said um, this uh, is a thing called dead naming um, which um, is 
hugely frowned upon by a lot of trans activists um, because it sort of it always ties the person into um, into the identity that they once had rather than the one that they picked themselves, um, and it's it's a valuable thing to know. Like I don't I don't know about that, but um, but I think if you if you try and cultivate a reputation as someone who not only cares about this but is open to being like called out for stuff like that in kind of a healthy way, then I think you know again it can only it can only help you. Um, reduce the amount of ignorance that I was talking about. Yeah. I, just, I also wanted to mention this idea of diversify your sources of input. Who are you following on Twitter? Like, who are you just listening to and not trying to jump in or invite to anything? But like, how many different perspectives are you actively seeking out so that you are more fluent and conversant in topics like this when they do come up? And, and I wonder when we have panel discussions like this, like what are the kinds of concrete things we can all go home and do that are going to improve our own practice? And those thinking about storytelling, not only as a product we're pushing out into the world, but also as something we're consuming and that we should be actively engaged in seeking out stories, um, I think is, is something very useful for all of us all the time. Yeah. This idea of being open to being challenged, which I think is so important and so easy to set aside uh, to, to not focus on that. But th at the beginning of this year, we launched an equity advisory board specifically because we realized that Yes, we are women-owned and we are women-led, um, but there is not as much diversity on our team as we want, ultimately, there to be on our team. And so we convened a group of individuals who are designed to challenge us, who are the people that we present our work to before ultimately it goes to our clients or before it's an ad campaign that goes live. And they're the ones who are there to break it down and find the, the missing pieces and find the stories that are not being represented appropriately. And then we go back to the drawing board. And it's been a, a relatively, it was a relatively easy thing to set up, but transformational for how we think about the work that we're doing and the role that we play in that work. I also wonder, when we think about setting up advisory boards or asking people for their time, how many of us are also budgeting for the expertise and you know paying for perspectives and not just appreciating it and asking again? Like, right? right? It's mm -hmm. that's part of I think our calculus as well. Of you, you tell me what your values are, show me your budget, and we'll know. And, and I feel like, um, so from my perspective is slightly different in this because obviously as a journalist, I can't pay my sources, but I am cognizant of the fact that I am taking up their time. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about, um, and, you know, trying to, I, I don't know, kind of diversify the diversity you have. So, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm writing a story about a particular field um, and I find women or people of color to contact, the next time I write a story about that field, I'm going to try and find other women and other people of color um, because first, well, for several reasons. Like, I think if you only go back to the same people as like your diversity people, um, it puts an unfair burden of responsibility on them. It, it means that they you soak up a lot of their time. Um, but it also is slightly antithetical to this idea of, of pursuing diversity as a way of broadening your own work and the opinions that you're receiving. If you're only going to two or three people from any particular community all the time, it kind of defeats the purpose. And it also sort of puts like a weird 
like moral onus on them to be like the spokespeople the for an entire group of yeah. yeah right like you know you are like my voice for women in science um and you know i've seen that happen a lot like we, we both of us know people um who have been very vocal about issues of equality and diversity who spend a disproportionate amount of their time talking about these issues anytime you manage to, uh, to achieve a modicum of diversity in any area that's great but that should only ever be a platform for trying even harder in that same area or in many others okay so i i have a question that kind of builds on that which is how how do you how do you set your personal goal on diversity how do you measure whether you're doing well in making progress towards diversity given a, a particular population or subject matter you know are you when you're talking about gender is it the representation within a field or the representation in the overall society? How do you go about making those kinds of metrics sorts of decisions? Uh, so for me, for, for me, for gender, since you picked that one, um, it, it's easy because I want to, I want 50, 50. Um, I, I'm not, I don't want to set the target as whatever, um, it is within a given field of science. Um, because I feel that, um, I don't think it's the role of journalism to just reflect society. I, I think that's a that's a naive view of what we do. Um, we are reporting on the world around us, but in that reporting, we are also creating the world. We are manifesting the reality that we also um, describe. Um, so, um, you know, I I think that it's important for journalists journalists to think about the world that we are creating, and I want to create one in which um, in which we have we have equity. Um, it's you know it is harder to think about what the right threshold is um, for uh, for other areas like gender is a good easy one to think about uh, to start off with but you know uh, I I I think we can all I think we can all make a start you know like I I said that I want to, I am currently quoting about twenty five percent people of color in my pieces um, I would love that to be higher. Um, I think if the trajectory stays the same or increases, that feels like a good thing to reach for. And I think for us, we are often thinking about demographic trends broadly. Like, what does the U.S. look like right now? And specifically, because it's science, we want to challenge the idea that the default mode is white and male and cis and hetero right mm -hmm. like so for us that we're looking against because so many people are in that one category so it's not that there's like a checklist we're not checking boxes we're looking for the best stories and you're in the same situation right yeah. there's no trade-off of like oh our quality is a little lower but we're hitting our diversity goals like that's nonsense that just doesn't happen for us I'm thinking about if you're an advocate and you are advocating for a marginalized population, you don't look like them, um, you know, whatever that the them is. How do you how do you do that effectively through storytelling if you can't find a way to include and find the 50-50 or find the 25 percent um, to kind of raise that voice? Mm -hmm. How do you do that on behalf of looking white? Well, yeah, I mean. I think there's a lot of different ways to tackle this challenge. And sometimes we know that we are not necessarily the best messengers. Sometimes we are deputized by people to tell their stories. They want us to use our platforms or our privilege or whatever it might be on their behalf. But I, I would be working with them in advance to understand what they want me to say. 
And I think it's even more powerful when you're not telling other people's stories. You're telling stories about experiences you had together because you're embedded in that community and you've been working side by side and you have, you know, at Story Collider, we focus on true personal stories about science. And I know that that takes some of the pressure off because we're not messaging and we're not talking on behalf of other people. It's always more powerful when it's firsthand. And so maybe that's part of it is figuring out how you, your own story becomes, you do this work and it's indisputably intertwined with the communities that you care about. And so you're not only telling their, their stories, it's, it becomes shared. No, I agree. And and like, so I think because of the nature of, of, um, of journalism, I'm, I'm not sure I've got a good answer to this, but, um, I think that one can always use, um, one's position and power to give people from the communities you're you're targeting more of a voice themselves um, rather than uh, acting as a spokesperson for them so that's sort of what I do when I when I try and find people to quote right I'm trying to give other people a voice or an opportunity to be heard Um, but this doesn't have to just be through like reported pieces it can be through like all kinds of other areas so um you mentioned henrietta Lacks earlier um so um rebecca sclute who's an amazing science journalist um, wrote this book the immortal life of henrietta Lacks, which i'm sure any of you have read rebecca has a policy where whenever she does public speaking events um if people ask her to do an event she'll always request that they also bring members of the Lacks family along as well so it's always a joint panel where rebecca is telling that story but people who are from um that family are also with her on stage uh, i think that's one great example of using your position um of power um to to you know give people who would not always have a voice a voice I'm still thinking about it because it's a great question. Mm. I wonder what it means like when, so when I do science storytelling type stuff, sometimes people are in the role of being a spokesperson and it's like, oh, but are they good on camera? Which sometimes is, um, there's all sorts of expectations about what that means in terms of the language that they use and are they assertive and are they code switching properly? So what if instead of thinking like, oh, who can we get who performs to the standards of what we expect? And instead of like us holding the camera and us editing the piece, you just give the camera to your community members and allow them to take the lead in creating these stories. And that, I think, sometimes is the solution to these kinds of problems, because it's not just how can I do this myself on their behalf, but how can we also build in equity and power sharing and and co-creation um, into everything. Yeah. You know, Karen, for years we worked on issues related to foster care and young people aging out of foster care. And um, one of the very first things we did was to create a youth council of young people who had aged out. And they became our spokespeople. They were paid. They were members of the staff. Um, and they were the ones who told their stories in their words. They were not our stories to tell, right? Especially given that some of them um, had very personal encounters that it was not our, it was not our place to, to figure out a, a better way to say that. Their way was the best way to say that. Um, and it was an incredibly powerful um, group of individuals that Every year changed, so there was always a rotating set of young people who traveled with us and went to Capitol Hill and told their stories. Um, But it was a way to ensure that the power of those stories was in their hands. And I think uh, in the first question you might have touched on this a little bit, but um, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to 
when you were going down the path of trying to find more women's voices, mm -hmm. um, sh uh, should we assume <laughs> incorrectly, uh, or perhaps um, surprisingly, uh, unexpectedly, that there were women's voices at the leadership and expertise level that you wanted, mm -hmm. or did you actually um, unexpectedly find that you were taken down a different field, maybe more junior or a little bit more divergent, mm -hmm. but that something you know good and glorious came from that as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so I, I would say a little bit of both. Um, you know, no one, no one here has, has asked this question tonight. But sometimes when I talk about this, people go, "But like, shouldn't you be looking for the most qualified people? Um, you know, don't, shouldn't you only care about the quality of the sources?" Um, which is kind of a ridiculous question for many reasons. But I feel, feel like in science, especially, um, there are there is usually no shortage of other people who I could find. Um, and usually, when I try and find um, women to comment on a particular issue, there are plenty around. I just don't know who they are, um, and they don't turn up in like the first two pages of a Google search because that often reflects the people who have spoken most about an issue before, who are often men or white men in particular, for all the issues, the systemic biases that we've talked about before. Um, so doing a little bit of extra digging, um, it often is easy to find women in senior positions who can comment on an issue. Um, I have, you know, never ended up publishing a piece thinking, um, oh, crap, well, you know, I used terrible sources here, didn't know what they were talking about, but thank God my spreadsheet looks great. Um, you know, almost all the time, it's how, like this person is incredibly knowledgeable about this topic, and I had no idea that um, they existed, and this is my beat. So, how, like, how was that possible? And I think that sort of speaks to um, a, lo a lot of the biases that we've been talking about. Sometimes, um, when those senior figures aren't available, um, I will turn to more junior people. Um, and there are plenty of them in science. Um, so for people who don't know, typical scientific career, tra career trajectory involves being a graduate student for several years and then a postdoc, maybe for a couple of positions for many, many, many more years. And then you become a professor of various ranks. Um, Postdocs are great. They are a massively untapped resource of people who've been knee deep in a particular field for maybe a decade. Um, you know, if they're not experts, who is? Um, and talking to them often gives you um, not just diversity in terms of the metrics we thought about, but diversity in ideology and in thought and in, and in, 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 in I just in ideas. Um, it sometimes said that. Um, Science progresses one funeral at a time. Um, as people who've dominated conversations for decades die or retire, and I think sometimes if you go towards more junior people, um, you you get more interesting perspectives, or certainly like fewer like chest thumping perspectives. So I'm sort of curious to, to hear a little bit about what sort of uh, reaction you're getting from your respective organizations, both leadership and, and colleagues. Are are they adopting sort of your approach to the work that you do, which would, you know, great multiplier effect. That's one of the things mm -hmm. we talk about an organization. Are they shrugging their shoulders or perhaps, you know, pushing back a bit? 
I mean, I'm I'm fortunate as as the executive director of, of Story Collider, I was able to shape my board um, to grow it and have overseen the expansion of our team from about five people to 27 people. So I, I certainly think my fingerprint is on that, and so you would you might expect that they support it and champion it too. But we also are. We have legitimacy from the institutions who work with us. Uh, universities and science societies are primary clientele for the Story Collider. I have a, a new position at Yale. I'm a lecturer. I'm invited to collaborate with the, the national academies. And in science, which is a strongly hierarchical field, we care about those things. We also care about data. And so one of the things that we've done is focused on publishing results and specifically asking questions about what does it mean for undergraduate students, for example, to listen to Story Collider episodes. How does, does it influence their grades in class? Yes. Does it influence their self-professed interest in science? Yes. Does it give them a sense that this might be a career path for them? Yes. Those are stated explicit goals of so many institutions within the sciences that they are struggling and failing with that for us to be able to say, this is our approach, this is how it's manifesting, here's the data and the publications to prove it. Um, we may receive criticism. Sometimes people don't take us seriously because they don't like the emotional side of what we do. But then I throw the citations at them about why that emotion is so effective. Um, so I've been fortunate, but this is our mission. This is part of what we do. And I, it's not for everyone. I've only had support um, at the Atlantic for this, um, but I also didn't ask permission to do it. Um, my view was, I'm just going to do it for a few years and then talk about it. Um, and so uh, my editor, who is a white man, uh, is very, very supportive about all of this um, and, and has been like right from the start. And, and actually, he was the one who encouraged me to write um, the piece describing like the, uh, the whole process. Uh, and his boss is Adrian, who started the whole thing in the first place. So that's handy. So <laughs> that was relatively easy. Um, now, I did, I did sort of prepare for um, the usual amount of blowback when I actually wrote that piece. Uh, and I was surprised at how little I got. Like there was, there was some, there was not none. Um, but in the main, the response was hugely positive both from um, scientists uh, and so and from scientists, from readers uh, and from other journalists. Women who I've contacted as sources before said um, they were uh, like they were really pleased that I was doing this. Other journalists um, I know uh, centered around their newsrooms. Um, you know, uh, Adrian and I both got requests to do radio interviews about this. Um, I have um, traveled to a couple of places to talk about about this and like challenges and expectations and stuff. Um, so I think the response has been has been really positive. And actually, you know, the thing the thing that I care about most, and this is both like a sad reflection of the world around us, but also I think a positive thing, is that when you make an effort to quote people uh, from groups that are marginalized in, in like in my pieces, people notice. You know, I've had people specifically say, like, thanks for quoting women. Um, you know, which seems like such a small like 
you know, such a such a low bar to be trying to hit. Um, but it's telling that this is the the ecosystem we live in. That you you know you can quote a few women scientists and people go, wow, that's that's fresh. Um, you know, I, the the book that I wrote. Um, about a third of the sources in it are women, and and again, like people notice that stuff. I'm sure it's the same for for Story Collider too. You know, I think if you if you make an effort, um, these things don't go unnoticed. We um, talked much earlier tonight about gratitude, and I'm going to end tonight by just saying thank you and sharing my gratitude for the two of you for what you're doing and how you're doing it. And, um, you know, the hardest thing to change to me seems to be behavior. And it, it seems that the two of you are, you know, thinking about your own behaviors, but you're also having an influence on other behaviors, mine included. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for everyone who joined us tonight and took hours away from your family. And I know that that's always hard, um, but I'm so grateful for all of you being here and part of this too. Can I just say one final thing? Of course. Thing? In storytelling, um, our practice is to go back to where we began. And we opened tonight with a story about whistling and the power that that had in that man's life. I also think it's crucially important to remember we don't owe anyone the whistling or the smile or the confirmation. As, as nonprofit leaders, as people who have many different layers of identity, we owe our best effort. We owe making sense of the complex world around us. And I think that storytelling and thinking really hard about everything we've talked about tonight is our way to make it matter and make it last. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. What Ed and Liz's story and others like them reinforced to me is that as writers, we inherently believe that we are telling our best stories. If asked, we'll say we conducted multiple interviews and sought out several sources, but the reality of implicit bias is that we bring it to the table without realizing it's there. I hope this show made you stop and think about your own inherent bias and what you can do to break it. One last thing, we're still a new podcast over here. And while we know that not all podcast applications and services accept reviews, if yours does, we would deeply appreciate your five-star reviews and comments. Most important, if these messages resonate with you, please share the show with others and spread the word as we work together to move our mission forward. Thanks, and see you next time on Mission Forward. I hear-